when I was in graduate school, a history teacher started the year, our very first lesson with him. He said, I'm going to do something old-fashioned in this class, and I'm going to do it every single time we come together. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you. Then I'm going to tell you, and then I'm going to tell you what I told you. And every single one of those class sessions, he would start by telling us what he's going to tell us, then telling us, and then ending it with telling us what he told us. And it was enormously helpful, because what we were doing is going through, this was church history, sweeping through church history to not only understand the the events, but to understand the principles. So, I'm going to copy him today. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you. Then I'm going to tell you, and then I'm going to tell you what I told you, because this is, I think, one of the most important messages in the Bible. And here's what I'm going to tell you. God uses people who have allowed him to heal them to heal others. Here it is again. God uses people who have allowed him to heal them to heal others. And the reason why this is extremely important is because we need to understand that failure in our lives is not the final word. We will all fail. You notice that? We will all fail in one way or another. Sometimes little failures, sometimes big failures. We will all fail. But because God has so designed it this way, when we fail, that is not the end of the story. If we respond to our failures the way God wants us to. And in that process, if we, have healed, if we have been bruised, if we've been broken or we've broken ourselves, it doesn't matter. If we allow God to heal us, he will then use us to heal other people. And that is one of the key principles for us to understand because we're all sinners. And we're all going to make mistakes. We're all going to make bad choices. We're all going to fail from, at one time or another. And the problem with religion is it says, you're now broken. You're no longer usable. What you've done cannot be redeemed. And so step out of the way. And that is never true in the life of God's people. He always redeems, if we allow him to redeem what has happened in our lives. We know that from Psalm 32, 51, and I'll show you from a passage in in 1 Corinthians. I can begin again. Because God is a God of giving us not just second chances, but continuing, ongoing chances. Because he knows how we're formed. He knows how fragile we are. And he has designed it so that he can keep picking us up, putting us back on our feet, and keeping us going. This is not permission to sin. Okay, This is not permission to fail. But it's encouragement to us to know that God has got a bigger agenda than just letting us sit on the side of the, ride in, uh, of the road in self-pity. He's got work to do, he's got work to do in our lives and work to do through our lives. And often, one of the most important things he's going to do is he's going to use your recovery to help someone else recover. He's going to use your brokenness that has been healed to help someone else who has been broken. We learn this from Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. Remember that King David had gone through a massive series of really wrong choices. No mistakes. They were wrong choices. He committed adultery. He committed murder. He, uh, he, he, he sinned against God. He, he sinned against the nation. And as a result, David suffered for months as God leaned upon him to bring him to the place of repentance. 
when he did repent, as soon as David owned up and confessed what he had done wrong, God forgave him. And in the process, David wrote a number of psalms, Psalms 51, 32, 38. But he wrote Psalm 51 to describe to us how God works in the process of restoring us after we have sinned. And we learn from from the principles as we've done that. He deals with the past. I can begin again because God forgives confessed sin. Now notice that it's confessed sin. And confessed sin is when I go to God and I agree with God that what I've done is wrong. And I name it as wrong. I don't go before God and say, well, God, if I've sinned against you. Let people say that. If I've sinned against you, I'm sorry. Don't ever let anybody say that. If somebody says, if I've sinned against you, stop them and say, what did you do wrong? Well, if I've sinned against you, no. No if. If you're asking me to forgive you, what did you do wrong? And understand this. Sometimes we must not forgive a person until they've done that. Because if you don't get them to own up to what they've done wrong, you're getting in God's way. They need to own their sin. They need to name it. They need to describe it in order for God to forgive them and for them to be forgiven. By the way, Jesus pointed out once, if you're coming to offer your your offering before the Lord, and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there. Go first be reconciled, then come and make your offering. He wants you to make the offering, but God will not accept offerings when we have not dealt with our sin by open confession. And the beauty about this psalm, is that David confesses openly before the nation and before the world what he has done wrong. Okay? We found out last week that in the present, I can begin again because God rebuilds us from the inside out. And David had to face tremendous consequences of his sins. And what God did was rebuilt him from the inside out so that he was able to, in a godly manner, handle the consequences. And that's another part of God's redeeming us, is that often we've got to deal with the consequences of our actions. He forgives us, but whatever we've done has created havoc somewhere. And in the process, God gives us the strength and the grace and the ability to handle those consequences in a way that is God-honoring. And now the third point, that when we have gone to God and confessed our sins, and we've allowed him to heal us, God's not done yet. Because what God can do now is he can use the broken bones inside of you to heal somebody else. He can heal your brokenness and then he will use you because he's chosen to do this. He could do it without us, but he's chosen to do it using us in many cases. I can begin again because God uses healed people to heal others. Here's what David writes in Psalm 51. It says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Now notice what he's doing. He's committed two crimes that deserve the death penalty. Adultery and murder. Death penalty. God forgave him. And you would think David would go, Okay, from now on I'm going to tiptoe through life. I'm going to keep this hidden. I'm not going to let anybody know about what happened. I'm going to cover it up. He doesn't. David understands that he has done harm to other people as a result of his choices. And so now he makes the choice that I am going to not only survive this experience, I'm going to turn it around and I'm going to teach others your ways and sinners will turn back to you. The ways that he's talking about here is the, is the mercy of God. The absolute mercy of God that forgave him for those two sins and others. 
and cleansed him. Our job is to make sure that the world understands who our God is. It's interesting, one of the passages we're going to look at later on, Isaiah said of, of Jesus when he came, that he will not cry out in the streets. And the word cry out is to cry out in anger. I remember as a child walking through downtown in our little town and a preacher standing on the corner yelling at people, you're going to go to hell. You know what he did it? Outside the movie theater. You're going to hell because you went to movies. It's kind of like, whoa, that is one really miserable God that just because I went to see a Tarzan movie, he's going to send me to hell. This man stood on the corner yelling about, Jesus never did that. Jesus never stood and yelled condemnation. He spoke very powerful words against the religious leaders. But he never yelled and screamed in the streets and became angry and and, and furious in that way at all. The God that we've got, the God who's revealed himself in Scripture, is a God we could never have invented. He's a God of absolute mercy and grace. And David says, I want the world to know about you. I'm going to teach them who you are. I'm going to make sure they understand your ways. He says, save me from blood guilt, O God. Again, he comes back and he says, I understand. Blood guilt meant I deserved the death penalty. The God who saves me and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. He's saying, once I'm forgiven, once I'm cleansed, I'm not going to keep silent about you. I'm going to make sure that the world knows all about you. And I'm going to sing about you. I'm going to declare your praise. He says, you do not delight in sacrifice, so I'd bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. Now, God does take pleasure in sacrifices and in the burnt offerings when they're done in the right spirit. But here David is saying, until I'm forgiven, these offerings would be meaningless to you. In fact, they would be abhorrent to you. God said that to the nation Israel. Until your heart's in the right place, don't bring these offerings. Don't bring these sacrifices. God hates hypocrisy. And so God would tell them, don't you dare bring these offerings. Bring them only when you're in the right place, in the right spirit. God does not like hypocrisy. He does not like us to to pretend to be pious. He knows our hearts. Can you imagine how foolish that is to pretend to be worshiping God when you know that there's unconfessed sin inside of your life? David says, you don't delight in sacrifice like that. Or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in offerings. Now, here's the thing to understand about the burnt offerings. The animals that were offered had to be absolutely perfect. No flaws in them at all. Okay? Keep that in mind. There was only one flawed offering. One flawed sacrifice that you could ever bring to God. And it's this one. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O Lord, you won't despise. Isn't that beautiful? The only flawed sacrifice we can ever bring to God is our broken heart and a contrite spirit. And actually, he says this, the opposite, oh God, you will not despise. Oh, no. God rejoices when we come before him with a broken spirit, contrite, sorry, a broken heart and a contrite heart before him. What causes hearts to break? Sorrow. Over the loss of somebody? Okay. What causes hearts to break? I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable with silence. Relationships. Isn't that interesting? That the thing that causes hearts to break most often are relationships. That's why we have country and western music. 
Remember my favorite song? I get tears in my ears from lying on my back every night as I cry over you. What breaks hearts are broken relationships. And you know what's scary? Is in this neighborhood, there are hundreds, thousands of broken hearts. Divorce in this area is just almost as common as marriage. And in that little school over there, in San Lo Hills, there are little broken hearts. Because their parents' hearts were broken. Divorce takes two hearts that God has bonded together. And God said in, in the book of Malachi, what you do is you amputate. And when you amputate, you end up with broken hearts. And those little kids have broken hearts because sometimes they get to be with their mom, sometimes with their dad. Sometimes they're separated from siblings. Divorce breaks hearts. And this is an ad I know, but that's why we're doing divorce care here later on in the year. We've started the process, and we believe that that's one way God wants us to, to minister to the, the community around us, is by helping people recover from divorce and get back on their feet, and hopefully to lead them to faith in Jesus Christ. Broken and contrite heart, he's speaking about here, though, is not relationships on the horizontal, it's the, hor- it's the vertical. And he says, there are times when we go before God with a broken heart because we have broken our relationship with him. We have harmed our relationship with him. And you know what? We think we've got the silly idea that when I've sinned, when I've done something wrong, God doesn't want to hear from me. When I've done something wrong, God is kind of like, stay away. Don't you dare come near me. It's exactly the opposite. When we have sinned against God, he wants us to come running to him. We sometimes act like a little bird that's been injured. And you've ever tried to help a little bird that's been injured? It flutters away from you. It won't let you get to it to help it. My son and I, well, my son loves fishing and I love watching him fish and untangling the wire, the, the cords and stuff like that. And several times now, fishing off of his boat, uh, off the ocean side, in, uh, off, off ocean side, as you cast, <laughs> a seagull will sweep, swoop in and grab your bait in midair. But the problem is they also get the hook. And so we've several times had to reel in a, 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 a seagull in order to get the hook out of their mouths as well. And boy, they fight you. We're just like that. That when we've done something wrong, when we've been injured, and God says, I want to reel you in, I want to comfort you, we fight against him. And he says, no, understand this. I want you to come to me with your broken heart, even if you broke it yourself, because I want to be able to cleanse you. He will not despise. He will not reject us. And then David says something interesting. He says, in your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Zion were the people of Jerusalem. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. David realizes that his sin not only had consequences for him personally, but his sin had consequences for others, and in this case, the nation. The whole nation now had been wounded because of his sin. And he's asking God, I'm going to tell him about your forgiveness. I'm going to tell him about your mercy. I'm going to sing about it. I'm going to declare it, Lord God. And I'm asking you to override the consequences of what I've done. Please, build up the walls of Jerusalem. Mean protect it. Protect Jerusalem from my sins. Protect Jerusalem and bring them to a place of repentance so that then proper sacrifices can be offered to you. And so that Psalm 51 ends with David saying, God... I'm going to take this brokenness that I have caused and I want to use it in every way that I can to rebuild other people. That's implicit there. It's explicit in the scriptures. We're told this, that God uses broken people 
who have allowed him to heal them. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you is what David said implicitly. Paul says it explicitly in 2 Corinthians 1.3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. In the context where Paul wrote this, he and his, his, his fellow travelers had gone through some kind of life-threatening experience where their lives, he literally said, we despaired of life. We figured we were going to die. And so in the midst of this unbelievably stressful time, he found this, that God is the God of all comfort. Read what it says. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion. To be the father of something means to be the one who gives birth to it, the one who brings it into existence. It is God who created compassion. Not us. We don't go to God and say, God, let me tell you about compassion. It seems to be a human thing that we've learned, and we want to recommend that you be a compassionate God. He's the one who started it. He's the one who is compassionate. And he's the God of all comfort. All comfort. So, no matter what is going wrong in your life and mine, he's the God of all comfort. I don't know about you, but see, each of us has this little emotional tank inside of us. But the problem with our little emotional tanks is that they leak. And so you wake up in the morning and the car battery's flat. You finally get started and you get on the, the, the freeway and traffic's backed up, and it's at a dead stop. There's all kinds of stuff that cause us to leak all of the time. You have teenagers at home. (laughs) Sorry, girl. We have these emotional tanks that leak all of the time. And what God does is God wants to come and refill those tanks. But the point is, he also uses us to refill one another's tanks as well. He's the God of comfort who comforts us in all our troubles. Okay, all. Whatever trouble you find yourself in, remember that God is available to be your comforter, no matter what is going on. But when he does that, it's not just to meet your needs. It's in order to build into you the capacity to meet the needs of others. So that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. The word comfort there is a fascinating word. It comes from two Greek words, parakaleo, which are brought together. And kaleo means to be called, and para means to be called alongside. And so we often, have, you may have heard it translated as a paraclete. Sometimes it's just transliterated into English that there's a paraclete. A paraclete was called along somebody, alongside somebody to provide the help for them that they themselves could not conjure up, that they themselves needed. So, for example, that word, the paraclete, was used for an attorney in a court of law. And so when you stood up before the judge, your attorney stood next to you, and your attorney was your paraclete. And it depends on the particular context in which you find this word, how you would translate it. 
Sometimes, and here, it's comfort. That there's a time when somebody is grieving. And our task is to go alongside of them and to comfort them in their grieving. Most of us are terrified of that job. Isn't that true? Somebody's lost a loved one. And it's like, oi, I'm going to say the wrong thing. So I've got a good rule of thumb. Don't say nothing at all. Often, sometimes, the only thing we need to do is to be there. Remember seeing that little ad of a little girl sitting on her grandfather's lap? And after a while, she runs out, and her mom says, What were you doing with Grandpa? And he said, He's crying because he's lost Grandma. And I was helping him cry. And that, that's what we're to do. Sometimes you're a comforter. And all you do is sit alongside somebody and maybe not say anything, but just be there to, to comfort them and to be alongside of them. Cheryl Sandberg wrote a book uh, recently, which is called Option B. Uh, her husband died suddenly of a heart attack. And one of the stories that she tells is of somebody who came to her office and just called upstairs and said, I brought you some flowers. I'm not going to take any of your time. I just want to let you know that I'm leaving some flowers here. So she said, no, 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 come on up. And the guy came and just sat down with her and just sat with her. And she said, that helped so much. Just have somebody to come alongside and comfort. Sometimes the word is translated encourage. You and I lose courage a lot in life. We get discouraged by the difficulties and the, and the problems in life. And one of our jobs is to come alongside somebody and help them, encourage them. Remember the author of The One Minute Manager? Ah, oh, come on, I can never remember. Um, Blanchard, Ken Blanchard. Ken Blanchard wrote this. He said, catch people doing something right and tell them. Because in that way you encourage them. And he said, and since most people don't do anything really right, catch them doing something approximately right <laughs> and encourage them. We're so weird that we, if we can see something to complain about, if we can see something to, to, to criticize about, we see it as our God-given responsibility. I've got to make sure you get this right. Color of the curtains. Wrong. You know, come on. And sometimes we say nothing at all. I'll give you a little hint. And I'm not fishing for compliments, but I'll give you a little hint. Some of the people who get the least compliments in the world are partial staff members. It's because we pay them to be good, so they've got to be good. Okay. Sometimes it's translated comfort. Sometimes it's translated encourage. Sometimes it's translated motivate. There's times when we look at somebody else, and really the thing they need most from us is not to sit and, and have a pity party with them. Our job is to get alongside of them and tell them, get back on your feet. Buck up. It's time to move on. And so the, the paraclete sometimes will come alongside somebody and say, it's time for you to stop this. I had a woman do that for me at, at my church in Philadelphia once. I was going on and on about my, I had done something wrong and I was whining about it. And she said, that's a racket. I said, what? She said, you love beating yourself up, don't you? I said, no, I don't. Yes, you do. I said, you've been doing it now for about five minutes. Stop. It's like, oh. Okay. He said, I don't want to hear about it again. Okay. It's done. Let it go. <laughs> I had a friend once, similar situation, whining about something I'd done wrong. He said, Raymond, would God forgive an alcoholic 
who dried up his life. Yeah. Would God forgive a womanizer who stopped his adulterous behavior and was faithful to his wife? I knew where he was going because both of those things were true about him. And I said, yeah. He said, would God forgive somebody who robbed a bank? And I said, you did? He said, yeah, I did. (laughs) It was like, are you kidding me? He said, no. He said, shotgun, mask and all. A couple of us robbed a bank when we were young men. And we paid for it. And God forgave us. Did God forgive us? And I said, yeah. He said, so let go of your stupid little problem, okay? Move on. And sometimes you need somebody in your life like that who will just come alongside and give you that kind of comfort, that kind of parakletos. And here's why, okay? You and I are Christ carriers. A few years ago, I was giving blood. And as they were taking blood, they'd ask me all these questions about, you know, have you had these weird diseases? And while I was giving blood, it suddenly dawned on me. I said to, called the nurse over, and, and they were already taking blood. I said to her, by the way, I've just come back from South Africa, and I took anti-malaria tablets. Whoa. You could have sworn that I told her that I had leprosy. I mean, they whipped that thing out of me. They threw away that blood, and they rushed me out of there. And she gave me the reason. She said, you may be a carrier of malaria, even though you don't have malaria. And the last thing in the world we want is your blood to be pumped into somebody else so that they get malaria. Now, that's a negative to describe what we are. We are carriers of Christ, okay? The Spirit of God lives in you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. And we are carriers of Jesus Christ to the world. And as carriers of Jesus Christ to the world, he uses us to heal people who are broken. You're a carrier of the Spirit of Christ Jesus. And we read this passage earlier. I just want to let us renew it again. Think about it. Jesus said, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Isn't that beautiful? That's what Jesus said, I've come to do. I don't want you to be crushed and broken by the world and broken by your own sin. I want you to let me come in and heal you and lift you and put you back on your feet and turn your life back into a party again. I want you to have that kind of joy in your experience. Beautiful passage in Matthew 12, verse 20, describes, again, quoting Isaiah, how Jesus treats us. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. This passage has been one of the most wonderful parts that the Spirit of God has used to minister to me. A bruised reed is speaking about, they would make flutes out of reeds in those days. They'd take a reed, and they'd core it out, take out the inner core, and then they'd punch little holes in it, and then they would use it, block up one end, create a little uh, funnel down this end, and then they would use it to play a tune. But sometimes in the process of using it, playing it, you would drop it and it would crack and it would break. And you'd throw it away. It was totally useless. And see, sometimes in life people think that that's what they like. You're no longer useful. You're broken. Jesus doesn't treat us that way. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Their wicks in those days, they just had a little 
lamp that had oil in it, and you'd put a wick inside it, and you'd light the wick, and it would draw the oil, and the oil would be burning off. But if you didn't replenish the oil, eventually the wick would start to burn. And when the wick started to burn, it was an awful smell and an awful sight. And the room would fill with this awful black smoke. And the only thing you could do is take that wick and throw it away. And there are times when we've done wrong or we've done wrong to ourselves. We've been injured perhaps by others. And that's what we feel like. feel like I'm repulsive. I'm repulsive to others. I'm repulsive to myself. And he doesn't snuff us out. Instead, what he does is he comes and he blows his breath back into us and brings us back to life again. And that's how we should be approaching people. It's often been said that the church is the only institution that shoots its wounded. And we should never be like that. Our job should always be to go to people to help, to heal them, and to help restore them, to put them back on their feet again. And Isaiah says, when we do that, this is what they will be. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. I wish I could show you. Go to the Birth Choice website, if you were at birthchoice.net, and just go down and take a look at the videos that we've put on there of some of the women who made different choices, some to keep their baby, some to give their baby up for adoption. There are such beautiful uh, uh, testimonies. And the beauty of it is to see these young women whose lives have been turned from broken people into oaks of righteousness. Absolutely beautiful. Please make, make an, a point to go and take a look at those videos. Maybe I'll try and show them sometime. For the display of his splendor, they just show the glory of a God who can restore somebody and bring their life back again. About a year ago, I went through a divorce. And that was, for me, the worst broken heart. I've ever known. And in the process of that year, God, it's just amazing how sometimes God does the unexpected. I was looking for a commentary on a book of the Bible. And so I was on Amazon, place Amazon, looking through books. And a book popped up. And it's called, You'll Get Through This, by Max Lucado. Amazon, christianbooks.com, go buy a copy And if you need it, read it or just keep it. Because sometime, sometime, someplace soon, somebody's going to walk into your life who needs this book. It's the most unbelievably helpful book for somebody who's going through a broken-hearted time. And here's what kept me alive. This is his main message. You'll get through this. It won't be painless. It won't be quick. But God will use this good, this mess, for good. In the meantime, don't be foolish or naive, but don't despair. With God's help, you will get through this. Isn't that amazing? I memorized it. I made copies of it, stuck it on my mirror at home, stuck it on my desk, carried one in the car, carried one in my briefcase. It's kind of like, and this was a brother in Christ who through his writing fulfilled what God says. That God uses people he has healed to heal other people. And that was an enormous part of my healing during this time. And so make sure you buy a copy of this book if you need it. It's, it's fantastic. And keep a copy to give away to someone else. The beauty about the scriptures is that God tells the truth. He didn't hide what David did. And as David opened up, David didn't hide what he did. 
And David wrote those psalms in order to strengthen us and in order to keep us going. And the psalm teaches us this, that God, I can begin again because God forgives, confess sin. I can begin again because God rebuilds us from the inside out. And I can begin again because God uses my failures when I've let him heal me in order to minister to other people. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you for the truthfulness, the honesty, and the hope we find in your scriptures. I thank you, Father God, that we are sitting in the midst of a church where that kind of mercy and grace is available even to a pastor, where that kind of mercy and grace is available to anyone who comes in, whether their wounds are self-inflicted or inflicted by someone else. And Father God, make us more and more like Jesus so that more and more people will be drawn to the God of all compassion and the God of all mercy. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.